One of the reasons we came to Mosaic when we moved here three and a half years ago was because it allowed for an opportunity to really get to know each other, um, spend some time, and the coffee ain't bad either. So God is good with good coffee. Um, so just a, a quick hit here on, um, and Carlton already referenced this, Governor Northam came out here you know, a couple days ago and said that we're going to have to narrow some things here. This uh, bug is getting out of hand again, unfortunately. So the elders will be meeting this Wednesday, thinking through, is there anything that we need to do as a result of that? Um, I, and I hope you know, I'm, I'm standing here without one because we determined that there's 20 feet of difference between here and the front, front folks. And uh, so we're careful with that. But I appreciate the fact that when we come in, people are wearing masks. I mean, it's, nobody loves wearing a mask. Nobody says, yes, this is the thing I want to do. But I appreciate we do that because we care about our neighbors. We love our brothers and sisters with whom we worship. So thank you for your willingness to do that, um, even as we're um, worshiping together. So we're, we're going to follow up um, our little time here on... Uh, Galatians. By the way, wasn't that fantastic worship? Carlton, thank you in the worship team. That was really good stuff. Thank you. Love those songs. Um, I don't know about you, but those are some of my favorite that we get to sing together. Um, so we're going to, yeah, we're going to tackle Galatians 3, 15 to 4, 18. So we have a lot to cover. Um, and uh, and I called this trusting by faith into our true identity. If you got the Mosaic email, you saw living into, the, into your true identity. And actually, I thought about it. I thought, no, it's really more about trusting by faith. And we'll be talking about what that means. But as a reminder of where we've come so far in Galatians, you'll remember that uh, context, 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 as uh, Rick would say, matters, right? We're understanding what is being written from the context of who was writing it to whom, and what was the purpose at that point in history for writing that particular word? And so we take that now, we understand it within that context, we do good hermeneutics, or diving into what that word is, and then we, we see, okay, what is relevant for today? And so we'll be spending some time talking about that. As you know, the context here was that Paul was writing his friends, um, these new believers that were come out of these several towns in Galatia, which is a Roman um, uh, province in the present-day country of, of Turkey, right? And, uh, and he, he, there are Gentile believers, for the most part, that he was writing to, that he had discipled, that he had brought into faith. Um, and it was relatively short after, shortly after he had left them that he's writing this, within anywhere from one to four years. And uh, he's addressing this issue that false believers have infiltrated their ranks, and, uh, and they're convincing them to follow... Um, these Jewish traditions as part, of their, as part of their faith journey. And he is really saying to them, guys, that's not what it is, right? Is it, is it Jesus that saved you, or is it faith plus these Jewish traditions that save you? And that's what he's been tackling here. And as you know, he's been pretty frustrated. He's called, he said some things, things. You know, he said, you foolish Galatians, as Joshua led, or read last week. Um, he wants them to know that they are believing a false gospel, it's not a good news at all. It's bad news. And he wants them to understand it is by faith that you've received Christ, and, and that is where your hope is, not doing all these extra things. Um, and as you remember um, uh, from a couple of weeks ago, he had already settled this with the apostles um, in Jerusalem. That was kind of their headquarters for the church at that time. He'd gone down, met with James and Peter, and uh, he had 
they got the, he got the right hand of fellowship, which is two thumbs up in a COVID world. Um, and, uh, and they said, yep, what you're preaching to the, to the Gentiles is absolutely spot on. So he has, continues on, and then, but then he went up to Antioch, and Peter follows him up there. And, and if you remember, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. He was following some of the Jewish traditions and mixing things up as we are wont to do. Right? We don't point fingers at Peter. It's just he forgot, right? We, we, we tend to forget the message and the, the good news that we have. And so Paul addressed that with him, and, and apparently Peter backed down because that was the end of it. Um, and that message that Paul was sharing with the apostles and with Peter later on was really to say it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. It's our faith in Christ, and that's, and that's what we've been tackling here. Um, as you remember, maybe uh, Galatians is this letter that meant the world to Martin Luther, right? In fact, it was Martin Luther, if you remember correctly, that's the guy who started the Reformation. There were other kind of folks that were kind of part of that, but it was Martin Luther. In his study of Galatians, that changed so much in Europe in the 1400s, 1500s, late 1400s, early 1500s. And he said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle to which I have wedded myself. Pretty powerful language. He said, it is my Catherine von Bora, which as you may know, is, was his wife. I love Galatians. And the reason he said that is that, uh, I got this quote, there's an excellent reason why Luther would make such a statement. This epistle so clearly proclaims the gospel message that sinners are saved not by works of the law, right? And that's what Luther was dealing with, right? It was, the, it was salvation by Christ plus penance, plus indulgences, plus these things that were added that didn't have any part of the gospel. And he said, but it was by grace alone, through faith alone, on the account of Christ alone. And that's what we believe as believers by faith alone, by, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And that's what we stand on, and that's the Reformation, how it got started. So, before we step into Galatians 3.15 to the end of the chapter, we need to understand a little bit about what is this Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant. Unless we talk about that, it's going to be kind of not make a lot of sense. Context, context, context. So, um, the Abrahamic covenant was the one not surprisingly, that God had um, directly with Abraham, and it included several components that include it, it was a permanent covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants, and, and it was this, I've chosen you to be my people. You and your descendants will be my people, you're chosen, and you're, all people are going to be blessed through you. That was what it was. And it was an unconditional, everlasting promise. No change to it, unconditional, everlasting. And in fact, when I say upheld by God, you may remember in Genesis 15, the last time you read through Genesis, there was this weird sort of thing that played out where God had um, uh, Abraham cut a bunch of animals, lay one side on one side and one on the other, and then uh, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and then there was this smoking fire pot and a blazing torch that went right through those cut-in-half animals. And most of us would say, that's not too much, of, we don't have much experience with that, I don't know what that means. But what that was saying was, God represented that smoking fire pot and blazing torch, and he was saying, be it to me as what's happened to these animals if I break this covenant with you, Abraham. It's on me, it's unilateral, it's mine to uphold this covenant, it's everlasting, it's permanent. Pretty powerful. I didn't know what that meant with the smoking fire pot until we had somebody from seminary come and uh, teach that in one of the classes that I went to. Pretty cool stuff. 
And Abraham's response in 15.6 of Genesis is that by faith he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what it says. Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that was part of what we studied last week uh, when Josh was preaching out of the first half of, of Galatians 3. So we're going to pick up from there. Uh, oh, well, let me, let me share the other side. The Mosaic Covenant's different. That came about 400 years later. It was a temporary covenant given by, by God um, to the Israelites to govern themselves as a nation. That was the intent until the Messiah came. And much of it has to deal with this problem of sin. So it's temporary, not permanent, not everlasting. And, and it's a if-then conditional set of promises. You remember again and again through Leviticus and, and through Deuteronomy and Numbers, God is saying, if you follow all these rules, I will bless you. If you don't, I'm going to rain some curses down on you and, and you're, you're not going to handle it too well. <laughs> Lousy things are going to happen um, to you. So, and did Israel follow that real well? No, no, they, they, they would do for a while, you know, and then they would drift away, and then, then you know, they'd, they'd get, get a little upside the head a little bit, and then they would follow God for a while, and then they'd drift. Um, and so it didn't play out so well, but the Mosaic Covenant ultimately was fulfilled in Christ um, and in so many neat ways. The people that, had, we're not going to tackle that today, but ultimately Christ was the fulfillment of the law especially all those elements about how are we supposed to deal with the sin problem that we have. But again, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Mosaic covenant about how do we handle a country, how do we live in relationship and community to each other. So we're dealing with all kinds of issues as it relates to behavior, laws, how we handle animals, mildew, all kinds of different things are in that sexual relations. Everything is, is covered or a lot of stuff is covered in the law. And that's what Paul is going to unpack as he uh, picks up here in Galatians 3. A few th so let, yeah, let's, let's start there. It says this in verse 15, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to an, a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. You and I sign a contract with somebody, we have to live by it. Our signature says we're going to live by this. I can't say, oh, I forgot about something. Oh, you know, I forgot, you know, my, my, that's not going to work. I don't have the money for that. Too bad. I've signed the contract. It's, it's going to happen. Um, he's saying the same way. Roman, Roman law was the same way. You have a covenant. Here we go. We're, we're, we're with it. He says, the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his, were, were spoken to his, uh, Abraham and his seed, singular, um, the scripture does not say into seeds, plural, meaning more than many people, but to your seeds. Paul is seeing something in the scripture as he's looking at that, and he's relating it to this issue with the Galatians um, as it relates to who they believe, the law, the Mosaic covenant, or the Abrahamic covenant. Um, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if, the inheritance de uh, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What Paul is saying here is that, and this is, this is mixed up, I should have said it the other way, it's the Abrahamic covenant, that was the first promise, followed hundreds of years later by the Mosaic law, but that doesn't stop what was the promise that was given by God to Abraham. He said that takes priority here because that's the first one. Um, 
For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise, an everlasting, permanent promise. And we'll unpack what that means in just a little bit. Continuing on in verse 18. What then was the purpose of the law? People are going to ask. We've been following this law thing, the Mosaic Covenant, for about 1,200, 1,300 years. That's a long time. We've only been around as a country for, what, 270 or so? For 1,300 years, we've been following the law. What's the purpose of it? Have we been, is that a mistake? Was, was Moses kind of just doing uh, some, something, some drugs up on the mountain there? What was the purpose? And he says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Paul is saying, what's the purpose of, of this? is it was added to restrain sinful behavior. If you, if you uh, have a classroom or a school that has no rules, Tom would know this as a school teacher, it's not going to work out so well. People will just kind of do whatever they want, and it's, it's a law that says, or rules that say, this is how we are going to guide our behavior, this is what we're going to do together, and people will still resist that, and we go on. But it's there because of transgressions to keep us reined in a little bit. Part of, the, part of the reason of the law was for that. But until the seed comes, which means Jesus. That's a capital S in my Bible, to whom the promise referred had come. So it was intended for a certain period of time, Moses through Jesus. Jesus has come. Guess what? The Abrahamic promise takes priority here. And then it says, the law was put into effect through the angels by a mediator, and uh, um, a media, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. What, what Paul is saying, if, if, if I'm talking about two different covenants, which he is, I go with the one where God himself is involved. God himself promised Abraham directly, I'm going to choose you, you're going to be my people, and all people will be blessed through you, and there is this special inheritance called be, being um, faith, creating a, a position with God that where one has righteousness. And, and Paul is saying, the Mosaic Law, and actually at that point, the Mosaic Law came through a mediator, actually through an angel, is what Jewish tradition was. When, when Moses went up, it wasn't God speaking directly to Moses, according to Jewish tradition. Look at Acts 7, you can see that. Um, it was through through an angel to Moses, and then Moses down to the people. And he said, I'd rather go with the covenant that is God speaking to people. That's the one that I would say is truest of all. Not the Mosaic law is bad, as he'll say here in just a minute, but the truest first one, the most powerful one, is one where God speaks directly to people. I'm going to see what, what God is saying in those situations. Continuing on, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Did the law somehow contradict the promises he gave Abraham? No, he says, absolutely not. But, if, but you know, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Let me stop there and just say, um, the Mosaic law is not opposed to God's promises, but it doesn't impart life. It's a restrainer. It gives guidance and clarity to life and how we should be living in a, in a nation and in in, in be governed, um, but it doesn't impart life. And in fact, it has this kind of dual challenge of it. It raises awareness of what I should be doing that I'm not doing routinely. 
And he talks about, he uses this notion of being imprisoned by sin. Part of that's our own nature, but some of that's the Mosaic law that would just, you know, that's why, that's why the Mosaic law had time and time again, if you break this law, this is how you're supposed to atone for that. If you break that law, this is how you're supposed to atone for it. And there were some specific things they had to do to address their sin problem. Continuing on. And again, if we were Jewish folks back in the day, this would all make lots and lots of sense, but it was, it was a, um, interesting to tease this apart and say, what, what are you saying, Paul? Um, again, picking up in verse 22, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Um, this notion, and continuing on here in verse 23, before this faith came, this thing that we now can experience God's righteousness through faith, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That put in charge is, a, is a, it's actually kind of a, represents a role that uh, the commentators say. There's not a real clear example, but the best thing is, is a strict disciplinarian. The law was a strict disciplinarian trying to keep us in line. That's why I have the picture of the, of the kind of uh, coach there. That was the purpose of the law, even while we were imprisoned by it, until Christ came. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. It makes us aware of our need for a Savior, um, uh, that we might be justified by faith. Now, the faith that, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. We're no longer having to have the strict disciplinarian over us all the time. We are in a completely different state. So the Mosaic law and the Abrahamic law are two different ones that we need to be mindful of. And what he's separating is, and ultimately saying is the Abrahamic law, that wins. That wins because it takes us back to what was really happening with Abraham, which was, that's where the inheritance comes from. Our inheritance as believers comes through the Abrahamic promise. Not this, I'm going to have to do all these things in order to earn God's favor. There's a purpose of that law, but it's not the end and be all. Make sense? All right. <laughs> I'm still wrestling with it. All right. But there's some neat things that come out of that. In the end, he's saying everything, the promise that, that was given to Abraham points to his seed, singular, and it points to Jesus, and that's where our hope is. And so he says in verse 26 to 28, some of my favorite verses are, it says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus sons and daughters, right? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And jumping down to 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this faith thing, receiving, our, receiving grace through faith simply by believing in Jesus has an effect on both individuals and us collectively. It has an individual effect that includes our identities change from being a prisoner of sin to being a son and daughter of God. Let me ask you a question. If you um, were Warren Buffett's son or daughter, or if you were Jeff Bezos' son or daughter, or you were Bill Gates' son or daughter, and you came in this morning, how might that change your mindset as you came in here today? My dad's got $150 billion. 
I think Jeff Bezos has $270 billion. He's the richest man right now at this point. And that's just financially, but how might, how might that change you, other than you probably have to have people watching over you all the time, right, just to make sure you're safe so you're not kidnapped? It might change your perspective a little bit. So instead of prisoners to sin, putting it back in the spiritual realm here, Paul is saying you're not prisoners of sin anymore, guys. That's being held back under the, the guise of the law. Why would you want to go back to that? You are now sons and daughters of God. But it doesn't stop there. He says you've been baptized into Christ because you've been baptized into Christ, you've been clothed with Christ. And there's several different elements to that that are really cool. One of which is this notion that I have, and I love this word, inviolable union with Christ. That means a never-to-be-broken union with Jesus. Nothing can break that. I have been joined with Christ. I'm clothed in Christ. I, I can't get my Jesus robe off of me. It is sticking to me for good. When God looks at me, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's perfect record. And so I get to benefit from that. All my grunk, all my sin went on to Christ and I get his perfect record. And that's what God sees right now. And that's pretty cool. But it doesn't just stop there. It means my hearts have been transformed. My heart has been transformed by Christ as well. Let me just read one verse here, Colossians 3. I was supposed to hand this out and I didn't. So here is Colossians 3.12. If you haven't read this recently, it's a good one. It says, Therefore, it's God's chosen people. There it is, that Abrahamic promise of being chosen as God's people. Holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And who does that describe being clothed with, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's Jesus Christ himself. We are clothed in Christ. It's transformed my heart. I'm united with Christ. But not only that... I get the blessing of knowing that my body will be transformed. This body that's going to get older and every one of us is going to die, at the point of the resurrection, every one of us gets brand new bodies. I am clothed in Christ. You are clothed in Christ for those who have been baptized in Christ. And it also says in verse 29 there that it says that let your... Oops. Wrong book. It says, if you, are, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That promise says that we are, again, we are chosen people. We're receivers of an unconditional promise upheld by God, and we are now viewed as righteous. That, that inheritance of being having our faith credited to us as righteousness, we get to experience that now as believers. Paul is again saying, why would you want to go back to the Mosaic Law? That's, that doesn't work anymore. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. But do you see how that, that kind of changes our perspective on, on life when I look at it and say, I'm, I'm not a prisoner to sin. We, slave to the, we sing that today, right? I'm not a slave to fear. I'm not a slave to sin. I am a child of God. And all those things, those beautiful truths that come out of being clothed in Christ. But what happened at the cross doesn't affect me just individually, but it affects us as a body of Christ too. And that's where that neat section in verse 28 uh, of chapter 3, Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, Jewish men at the time would often be heard saying, I'm so glad, thank God, I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, I'm not a woman. Pretty sexist thing to say, isn't it? Pretty racist thing to say, but that's what they would say as a way of saying, I'm so glad I'm superior to all those inferior dog people. Right, that I just, I, you know, I, I'm here, they're there, thank God. And yet Paul in this 
aims his, his words right at that. Because he says that our race and our ethnicity doesn't separate us, it makes us one. We are one regardless of our race or ethnicity. Our social or economic status does not separate us. He says slave or free doesn't matter. And our gender doesn't separate us. Three huge typical things that we look at that separate are you male or female? Let's see, how are you, how are you dressed? Can I tell if you, you know, come from a wealthy family or not? Um, and obviously racial or ethnicity tends to separate as we've seen in our country this year and has been going on for a year. He says all of those things don't separate us. We're all one in Christ Jesus. All one. All one. That means we are brothers and sisters for good. We are part of a heavenly father that will not change. And that's pretty exciting. What does that really mean? It means human distinctions lose their significance. I don't look and decide whether or not I get to like you or not, or love you or not, you're my brother or sister. And even if you come from a different perspective, even if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian, it doesn't matter. I love you. It doesn't matter. Those are, those are dinky, little, little tribal things that don't matter in terms of eternity, right? Little, little, little things. And I don't mean to discount politics, but, but in light of eternity, pfft, nothing. I shouldn't be doing that on, on sorry about that. Um, so that's, that's, you know, if, whether or not you're a Cowboys fan or a Steelers fan, as we have some here today, that's fantastic. It doesn't matter because really the Eagles are the best. Um, but we knew that already. Um, but we're equal heirs. We are equal heirs of the promise. We're all one in Christ. Somebody doesn't get it more than another. People who are Elders don't have it more than the person who's not an elder, right? The pastor doesn't, you know, there's, there's honors there, but, there, but it's, we're equal heirs of the same promise. We're loved no less, no more by, the, by our Father. That doesn't change, right? Changes how we approach our brothers and sisters, though. It does. If when we start looking at people and we say, we are one, we are one family, for good, it changes things. Let me share you a quick story. There was a number of years ago, I worked for an organization, and um, I ended up having a, in my office a heated exchange with somebody, and we were at loggerheads on a particular issue. And I was mindful that she was, a, we have a different gender, and she was of a different race, and we could not agree about some things. And it was, it was pretty intense, and there was a hierarchical difference. I was her boss, and uh, um, it was not going well. We were getting to that point where it was like, you know, you thought we had a little difference. Well, it ended up moving more and more. We are far and far into our opposite corners of the ring and beginning to kind of throw things, not literally, but figuratively at each other about what we were or weren't not. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit just pops something in there. You ever have that in a conversation where it's like, that wasn't for me. <laughs> I'm going into my flesh right now. And all of a sudden, God popped in this notion that said, when's your sister in Christ for good? <laughs> and I wanted to be angry and I wanted to defend myself and tell her why I was right and she was wrong and why in the world would she be saying this and that? But I couldn't help but escape that reality that she was my sister in Christ and she loved the Lord. She did indeed. And we were going to be together. And I said, you know what, Gwen? You're my sister. I don't know how we can get through this, but I know you and I are going to be together forever. I don't know for as long. I don't know how long we're going to work together, but you and I are going to spend eternity together. And we're not we're not responding 
as a, as a heavenly family member with each other right now. So can we just stop and we ended up praying. And I'll tell you, we both prayed and we came out of that in such a different frame of mind because we recognized we're the body of Christ. We are one. We are one. And those little differences, what we were arguing about in rel relative to eternity didn't really matter that much. We figured it out. We figured out how we could both compromise and figure out what would, what would work in that situation. And it was one of those great reminders to me, we are one family. Let's operate from that. It changes our perspective when we recognize that. And it's so hard, though, sometimes to do that. I love that passage. We're going to get back to 4, 1 to 7 in just a moment, but I wanted to jump over that because I want to land and finish on, on uh, Galatians 4, 1 to 7. So moving over to, to Galatians 8 to 18, Paul is picking up some of what he was writing before about um, why are you going this direction, guys? It doesn't make sense to me, right? Why are you buying going to the Mosaic law as opposed to the Abrahamic promise? And he says this in verse 8, Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature, who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, isn't that neat? Are known by God. Every one of us is known by God. He has an intimate picture of our heart. Our be he sees our behavior, of course, but he knows everything there is about us. We are known by God, and he's reminding them of that. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles, meaning the law, right? Those Jewish traditions that you think are going to save you and put you in right standing with God. That's not it, guys. He says, who, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years following some Jewish traditions there that they've been taught that you need to do. You have to be part of the Jewish family before you can be saved by Christ. I fear for you, he says, that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Where, did you not hear what I was sharing, the true grace of the gospel? And then he picks up later um, in verse 12, he says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. In real intimate language here as he's writing his, his brothers and sisters there. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. I'm assuming that maybe he was traveling from place to place and for whatever reason, because of this illness that happened, um, he needed to stop and take a breather because he needed to get well. And so uh, he writes that it was because of that illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me like or with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. You welcomed me. We had trust. We broke bread. There was fellowship. There was wonderful connection and love that was happening in our relationship. But then he says, what's happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you had... If you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. That's led people to thinking that the thorn in, in Paul's uh, side or was, was the fact that, that he had problems with his eyes. We don't know that for sure, but that might be the reason why that might be what, what he struggled with. You loved me so much, you would have taken your own eyes and given them to me, he says. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Remember how much love and fellowship we shared? But now I'm telling you the truth, and you're, you're apparently is getting some feedback that's saying, oh, you can't trust Paul. Can't trust Paul, what he's telling you, because those folks are, are telling him. In fact, he says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What, you want is, what they want is to alienate you from us, to separate us, right? Sometimes people get into manipulative relationships that way, so that you may be zealous for them and what they're saying. They want these, these again, 
Judaizer uh, folks had come in to be able to say, I want you have to be able to follow all these Jewish laws in order to be truly a believer, um, that it's Jesus plus is what they're saying. And so Paul is saying, be wary of those that are trying to win you over to a false gospel and imperiling the gospel I, t- I taught you. And that be, be mindful that some people are going to try to manipulate you, right? There are some people in this world that are wolves that try to do the wrong thing, and they're going to try to get you to do the things that are, that are not true, that are going to pull you away from, from the, true, uh, the true gospel. And he says, be wary of them. They're trying to get you to be zealous, but it's about zealous around the, around the wrong thing. In fact, he says, it is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, and not just when I am with you. And uh, this notion of, of, of being zealous for the right thing, but also always being zealous. If we're supposed to be zealous about our faith, don't just do it when people are looking, right? Be zealous at all times about the great joy that we have in, in our gospel. Mark Lamb, I think, is going to pick up next week and follow up with that. But I'm going to go back to the very, or the very beginning of chapter 1, because I'd like to park there for just a little bit. Um, and this is where we get into our true identity. Um, and it says this, uh, What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, beginning in verse 1, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees in the t- until the time set by his father. That was the case. A son would be, not, unfortunately not daughters, but a son would be designated, a particular son would be designated as the heir of the estate, and he would be responsible for learning how to run the state. And he had custodians and trustees that would follow him and teach him um, how, to, how to manage the estate, learning to become wise, learning to become disciplined, so he could manage that. Oftentimes, again, dad was managed their estate. It was probably a large farm oftentimes, and that's how it played out. But during that time, Paul is saying, they were controlled, right? Everything, they didn't have a lot of decision-making. They didn't have any authority as a kid. That was how we were. We were under the authority of the law um, and in this kind of strict taskmaster is what he's saying. But now, beginning in verse 4, he says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons and daughters. So right away, Paul is saying, we were that, but let me talk to you about your true and new identity as a new creation. We've been redeemed, number one, and he says we, have, we now receive the full rights of sons. We're not under the law. We, have, we are now free to enjoy full sonship and daughtership. And he goes on to say, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So not only are we sons and daughters of God, but we are holding the deposit of God's Spirit in our hearts. It says that, and God sent that Spirit into our hearts. And it's through the Spirit that we get to call God Daddy. Not just Father, not Heavenly Father, and we can certainly refer to Him as that, but this notion of Abba is this intimate way of connecting with God, calling God Abba. And in verse 7, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. An heir is one who is is a person inheriting and continuing the legacy of a predecessor. I get the full benefit, if you're an heir, we get the full benefit of of somebody we're inheriting from. Um, 
And we get to continue on the legacy of that person, especially if that's a good person, right? Um, in Ephesians 3.6, it says this. Specifically, as Paul is writing to the Ephesian Gentile believers, and I think it amplifies this a little bit, he says this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs, again, heirs of the promise, hearkening back to the Abrahamic promise, together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together, or fellow partakers, in the promise of Jesus Christ. See how this is all beginning to weave together? Paul is looking back at the Abrahamic promise and said, it's still flowing out, that everlasting permanent promise of an inheritance of having faith making us righteous before God that played out with Abraham, we get to experience that through the ultimate blessing, the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ. And we as Gentiles, formerly dogs with no hope at all, we get to enjoy the full rights and promises of sons of God. Not a secondary inferior class. We are loved and cherished is what he's saying. I don't know about you, but that's good news. We, we just kind of jump over that and say, okay, whatever. But we don't fully embrace what it means to have our identity based in what we just described, our identity, who we are. That's why I asked you, if, if your dad was Warren Buffett, would that change how you'd, how'd you approach life? Maybe a little bit. Um, I would have liked that at times. When I think about all those things, being sons and daughters of God, receiving the full rights of God, including love, significance, all those things, being able to call God Daddy. Here's some of the, here are two pictures that really stand out to me. When you look at those, what do you see? Acceptance. Strong acceptance. Yep. Anything else? Joy. Yeah. Yep. Comfort. Yeah. Yep. The guy in particular, you see that. Yeah. That's who we are. In fact, as a reminder, we're, we're Jesus' brothers and sisters, right? We're not just sons and daughters of, of the Father. <laughs> adopted kids, as Ephesians 1.5 says. But we are loved and embraced as adopted sons and, sons and daughters of, of God. And those, those kind of bring it home to me. It's, there's not too many pictures out there on the, on the Internet that, speak to, that show God the Father interacting with his kids, but those ones through the form of Jesus, God's Son, really bring that home to me. The problem is, of course, it can be hard to live from that. If I believe those things, I'm fully significant, I'm fully loved, I got it, then it doesn't matter what happens at work, what happens in my, in my class, if I get a bad grade, you know, I can move on. If my marriage is kind of stinking up the joint, or if my, you know, my relationship with my kid isn't going so well, or my neighbor treats me a certain way, I can go through life because my identity is secure. I know where my significance comes from. I know who loves me. I know why, where my hope is in. I know that I mess up, all those things. I can, I can live with that. But our problem is oftentimes we don't, right? So circumstances come up, relationships happen, and all of a sudden we start struggling. And so what happens is that even though John, uh, Jesus promised to not leave us as orphans, he was talking to his disciples. He says, I'm going to leave somebody for you here to tend to you. We often live like one. In fact, those, we, we, can, we can live like them a lot. Um, a number of years ago, my, my wife and a couple of our kids went to, to an orphanage in Ukraine, and I'll never forget 
one of those kids that was in the orphanage was one that, that I could just tell, I kind of have a sense of who's hurting the most when I, when I go into a room. And I got the sense that, that he, was, he was hurting. He was the one. He just looked kind of snarly. And uh, um, I could tell the other kids didn't really like him. They kind of did a little picking on him things. And he was just agitated. And I just thought, somebody's got to love this kid. You know, we were only there for an hour or two just to interact with kids and love on them for a very short period of time. And he ended up coming over and holding on to me because I paid him a little attention. And he stood right beside me, stood right beside me, maybe to protect him from some of the other kids. But it just made me so sad as I left. And he was just looking for somebody to love him. He hung on to my, the side of my, uh, of my body, kind of held on to my, on my side. And he was so hoping I'd learned through an interpreter that, that maybe I would take him home, right? This orphan, this unloved, unbelonging kid that didn't know what love was, I don't know what his mom and dad's situation was. I don't know what his family situation, but he wanted to belong and he had no significance in this world. He was treated really lousy. Sometimes we act in certain ways and I want to just talk about that. It stems from the same issues. In the same way, all of us at a certain point in our life kind of had to deal with what are we going to do with, with these lies that have happened to us, that have, that have been told to us about who we are. And we, um, we are... We either learn early on we're, we're lovable people and, and, and from some source that we're significant, that we're accepted, but oftentimes in our life we learn those things are not, we're, we're told those are not true, that we're not very lovable, we're not significant, we're really not acceptable, and you really don't belong. And in response to that, our, our hearts code two different ways, and they're both orphan tendencies. One says, um, I believe it. I believe those lies that people have told to me, and I'm going to follow that path. I'm going to live as though I'm not very worthy, I'm not very significant, and I start, I buy into those things. And so behaviors and tendencies play out of that, that I'll call a failure orphan tendency. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. Or some people say, that's not true, and you put, you know, stiffen your lip there and, and, your, and your chin, and you say, nope, I'm going to prove to everybody that I am worthy, I am lovable. And we take what is a pharisaical, pharisaical tendency in terms of our orphanhood. We start living as if we are orf- as an orphan, as opposed to knowing we're really, really loved. And so what happens, and we have both of those options, or you can do the cycling combo pack orphan where I go from one to the other to the other in a variety of ways. Maybe you can relate to this. Here's what it looks like if you're a, pharis- excuse me, a failure orphan. Here are some of the tendencies. To live like an orphan as opposed to a dearly loved child of God. I feel alone, lack of vital intimacy with God. I'm anxious over my felt needs. Anxiety is a predominant feeling for me. Friends, money, other issues, I'm all alone, nobody cares, is a, is a kind of narrative, a self-talk narrative there. I feel condemned, guilty, unworthy before God and others. And that's just kind of how I feel on the inside. I have a small or little faith, lots of fear, little ability to really trust God. In fact, I'm not sure I can trust God often discouraged, defeated, and lacking spiritual power is a tendency of a, somebody who experiences a failure orphan sort of tendency. But for each of those is an offsetting way if we understood that we are a, our, our identity as a son and daughter of God who loves us and just absolutely is crazy about us. Instead of feeling alone we, or lacking intimacy with God, I have a growing assurance that God is really my heavenly Father. He is really for me. He really is. And instead of being anxious over these, these felt needs of this and that, I trust the Father with growing confidence in his loving care. 
and I'm freed more and more from worry. Anxiety doesn't plague me because I trust that God has got me. He knows me. He knows what my needs are. Increasingly, as, a, as my identity becomes sure, as a son and a daughter, feels, I feel loved, forgiven, totally accepted, become, because Christ's merit really clothes me. That notion of being clothed in Christ. Instead of a small faith with lots of anxiety, I daily, hourly trust in God's sovereign plan for my life as loving and best. That means that even when I drop coffee and it sprays all over me, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I went up and I made a cup of coffee in my office. It was okay. I didn't get the coffee I wanted, but it was okay. And in that, in that experience, it's just one small way of saying, I trust you, God. I trust you with this. Something bad happens on, on the, my way to work, you know, or I hit a whole bunch of red lights, or I experience something lousy at work or in you know, some other relationship or whatever. I trust you, God, because why? He's for me. He's making me more and more like Christ every day. And does that mean that he's, he's providing comfort in painless days for me? No. He's allowing painful, uncomfortable things to happen in my life because his end goal is to make me more and more like Jesus. That's his desire. He knows me the very best. He knows what's going to move me along that path to becoming more and more like Christ. And so my walk is becoming increasingly daily, hourly, sometimes minute to minute, depending on the stress in my life. I trust you, God. I trust you, God. Because he's my dad. He's my daddy. Instead of being discouraged, defeated, and lacking spiritual power, I'm Christ-confident and encouraged because of the Spirit working in me. Right? So there's times where we start seeing, I'm, I'm sensing the Spirit. He's talking to me, and now I'm listening. Those things that I wouldn't used to have heard, now I'm hearing them, and I'm realizing that's how he's prompting me. I'm quiet enough, I'm listening enough, and how God is changing me. So I, because I'm the son and daughter, or daughter of God, I'm, I'm sensing that. I'm picking up on those things. I'm operating through that my true identity. Some of you may struggle with more pharisaical orphan tendencies. And these look like this. Live on a success-fail basis. Need to look good. Performance orientation. This is one of my besetting sins. I, I want to do that. I want you to be impressed by what I have to say or do or in my job, whatever that is. And that's, that's, that's living into a lie, right? That doesn't make sense. And we'll talk about the opposite side of that. Or I labor on sense of unlimited obligation. I'm trying hard. I'm striving. I'm striving. I get burned out. That's a, that's a pharisaical orphan tendency. That's not a son or daughter. I resist authority. I'm not easily teachable. Any of these ring true for you? Or I'm defensive. I can't listen well to others. I bristle at the charge of being self-righteous, huh? That's probably a tendency that says, hmm, that's, that's, that's a struggle for me. Or I need to be right. Unable to tolerate criticism only can handle praise. Does that relate to any of you guys? That's, that's a painful one, isn't it? I want to be right. In arguments, that's a tough one to let go of. The offsetting one, if, you're, if you have a son or daughter mentality, is learning to live in daily intentional partnership with God, not, fear, not fearful. I don't have to worry about what you're thinking about me. I'm just going to preach what God has laid on my heart to preach. Right? I, my, my performance as a person really doesn't matter as much as I'm leaning on Christ for my daily uh, partnership. Instead of laboring under a sense of unlimited obligation, I'm pursuing prayer first. I'm not trying to do it on my own. I'm praying. Prayer is not my last resort. I'm going to God and saying, Daddy, help me right now. Instead of resisting authority, I have the strength to be submissive and broken before people. 
That's where God wants us. You show me a, a person who is evidencing humility in significant ways, I would say that's a person who is learning to walk closely with Christ. Not pride, humility. Instead of being defensive and not being able to listen well, they're open to criticism because I'm a son and a daughter of God. So if somebody says you're not doing it right, it's like, okay, I'm sure. I'm, I don't do it right all the time. So I, I can consciously stand in Christ's perfection, not my own. I don't have to worry about me getting it all right because in the most important area of my life, when it comes to my righteousness, Christ did it all. God looks at me and he sees Jesus Christ. He knows me. He sees all of me. He sees Jeff, but he sees Christ's perfect record and that's what I stand on. So it makes me less defensive. I don't have to argue with you to make sure you know I'm right. and I, I, no, I'm not. I'm usually wrong. Lastly, instead of being, needing to be right, since one's righteousness is in Christ, I don't need to boast on my record or defend it. I just don't have to go that direction. I can speak up for myself. I can share what I think is right, but it's always with, with grounded in humility because I know my, at my base, I'm secure in who I am in Christ. Does that make sense? Our identity matters. And that's what Paul is trying to say to the, to the Galatians here. Don't forget who you are now. As new believers, don't go back to this old way. Understand who you are as beloved sons and daughters. And so what's the answer to this, this problem that some of us can have? If we say, maybe some of those orphan tendencies, I would check off and say, that's me. There's a lot more on, on both of those that I can give you if you're interested. It's through a discipleship course that Cheryl and I went to a number of years ago. Um, and they just start play out and they plague us. They keep us from being really uh, living out out of joy and hope in our lives and out of encouragement to other people. We can, be, we can be beset by those things. So what's the answer? Paul says it again and again and again through Galatians. Trust by faith. Believe is what he says in what Christ did in the new creation that you are. He keeps saying again and again, believe by faith who you are. That's what he says right here in that very section to redeem those under the law. Because you are sons, uh, where does it say that? You are all sons of God through, through faith, by believing, through faith. Keeps going to that again. By believing, that's who you are. So that's, that's part of it's just saying, I believe it, right? When, when Abraham was talked to by God, all Abraham had to do was believe that God's, God said what he meant. That was it. And I believed it, and that was credited to him as righteousness. So for our sake, we just need to say, I guess I am loved, and I'm a son of God, son of God or a daughter of God, and I am cherished, and I have this incredible new creation identity before me. So it's believing God and taking him at his word. Um, uh, Lauren Daigle sings this song, You Say. Have you listened to that song a few times? Maybe a few hundred times if you're listening to Christian radio on, the, on, your, uh, on your radio. I was going to play it, but it's too long. Um, but I just wanted to, to read some of the lyrics there. It says, The only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. Not my boss, not my, not my kid, not my spouse, not my boss. You know, it doesn't matter. It's what you think of me. And in you, I find my worth. In you, I find my identity. You say I'm loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I'm weak. You say I'm held when I'm falling short. When I don't belong, oh, you say I am yours. I believe, I believe. What you say of me, I believe. So to a certain extent, it's, it's as simple as that. I believe who you say I am, God, and I trust in that. 
And all the differences that come out of that play out. And there's one last part. I was going to end there, but then I thought, you know what? I think it's a little more than that. And I, and I added this just because I'm one to want to do that. And I added this. I said it's, it's about abiding in Christ and his strength. Right? And I think if we woke up every day and say, how am I going to walk with you, Jesus, throughout this day? How am I going to walk with you, abiding in your love, abiding in, in what you bring to me, all my rights, all those wonderful things that you bring to me? How am I going to live by that, by faith? Oops, sorry. Did I go one past? Uh-oh. Sorry, Brianna. I messed up. All right, there we go. We're able to take every thought captive. I don't know about you, but the challenge is actually believing who God said I am, right? Because I have all these other thoughts that are saying, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. But in God's strength, not my own, I can take every thought captive and I can believe who God says I am. And so instead of following those old things that we would used to believe about ourselves, we say, nope, I choose prayer and gratitude over anxiety, as Philippians 4.6 says. I choose joy over despondency because of what uh, it says in uh, Psalms 28 and 7 and uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. I choose community over isolation. You're here because you want to be a part of community. You chose to be here. In Hebrews 10, it talks about that very clearly. And then lastly, it says, uh, we trust our great God and the new identity he has given us. We believe, we believe by faith and in his strength, we believe, and it changes everything. We are not nobodies in God's eyes, right? We are dearly loved, chosen people. And that makes a lot of difference. Let me just finish by reading those verses in Galatians 3 that I think are so powerful. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither love nor or Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Our identity, true identity, is what changes everything. Thanks for being my brothers and sisters. I'm going to get to enjoy you guys forever, guys. Let's treat each other as such. Let's live that way. Let's go out into our world this week knowing that we are dearly loved, chosen people. That ain't going to change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, for this uh, truth that you brought home in, in uh, your word. We trust it. We trust that you see us, that you love us, that we are your sons and daughters, that we have significance in belonging and love and acceptance because of what you did at the cross. We are those heirs of Abraham's promise. So thank you, Father, for making us your kids, for adopting us, us as your kids. We pray that we would live out of that truth and help us when we see those orphan tendencies uh, cropping up, Lord, that we would call it, that you would remind us in those moments and say, nope, that's not your identity. That's not who you are. Lord, help us to live from our identity that you have for us. Thank you, Father, for loving us well. In Jesus' name, amen.